Please turn with me in your Bibles once more now to First uh, John. First John, as we continue our series in this letter of John. First John, and we're now in chapter three of First John. In a moment, we're going to be reading from verses four down to verse twelve. And we're going to be looking at the theme, God's children and Satan's children, compared. God's children and Satan's children, compared. Before we do read God's holy and infallible word, I want us all to think and ask ourselves and think about this. Has anyone here traveled abroad? Anyone here gone to a part of the world where perhaps you were the only person who spoke English. Or perhaps you're the only Christian in the area. What would you expect? Would you expect people to maybe think different to you? Act a bit different to you? And maybe, and if you were even moving to an area, you would learn about the place and the different things, the different backgrounds, the way of looking at the world. You would expect, wouldn't you, if you went to a different country, different cultures, different customs, perhaps even a different religion, that things would be different. And even ask the boys and girls here, how about boys and girls, if you see uh, children from a non-Christian home, perhaps uh, they don't believe in Jesus and you meet those children, will they act different? Will they be a bit different? No, maybe they might have the same hobbies as you. Maybe they might like football like you do, or rugby, or whatever the case may be. But there will be differences, won't there? Or there should be differences between you and an unbeliever, boys and girls. There should be something that is different from you than a boy and girl who says, I don't trust in Jesus. One thing that's going to be different, I hope, is that you want to come to church And they might find church kind of boring. But a Christian, out of a love for God in his heart, wishes to come and worship God. Out of a love for Jesus, wishes to thank him with all the other Christians. And to share that joy with all the other Christians. Do you know, for the first month I was a Christian, I never met another Christian. And that day... I met Christians for the first time. It was one of the happiest days of my life. I still remember it. It was so wonderful to be around other people who believed the same thing I did. Don't take this for granted, dear friends. We have a wonderful privilege and we share something about our Savior. But if you meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus... What should we do? Boys and girls, if you meet a boy and girl in in school, what do you do? You share the good news with him. Loving Jesus so that he or she may too wish to come with you and come and worship God with you. And worship the same God. Now we're not trying to get them to be like us either. We don't want them to just, hey, we want them to act like us so... We feel a bit more comfortable around them. We want them to be like Jesus. 
to love him, to cherish him. We're, we're sinners. We're not the best examples at times, are we? But we want people to be changed and to be like Jesus. Until a person trusts in Jesus, he or she is like a person who speaks another language. Aren't they? When I heard the gospel before I was saved, it made no sense to me. Why do Christians go to church? Why would you want to waste all that time? It seemed like such a waste to me. They were like speaking another language to me. Somebody would share the gospel or, or something in the Bible. It was an unintelligible book. It was something, what is this talking about? This is all nonsense, I would think. But then when God changes our hearts, ah, that is what it's talking about. We now speak the same language of heaven. We understand. Why? Because of a work of God in the hearts. And this is what we're going to be looking at here this morning. We're going to be comparing two families. One family understands this and loves the voice of the shepherd. The other family doesn't. And needs to come to trust in Jesus. So let us read now God's holy and and infallible word. And as we listen, may we follow his voice. May we love the voice of the shepherd. For this is God's holy and his infallible word. Verses 4 now to verse 12. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know... That he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. Not as Cain who is of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. And his brothers righteous. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to a very serious and a very sober part of the Word of God. And it is part, these are parts of the Word of God, this and other parts, we would often wish perhaps to skip over. But we must look at these passages to grow in our assurance of faith. Or to put it another way, that we know that we know him. Do we know that we know Christ? And this passage here has the greatest contrast that you could possibly give. Two families. 
Two eternal destinations. One from above. The other from beneath. And the purpose is here not to shock you and to scare you into action. It's it's really not that. And John is given many comforting words throughout this letter so far, hasn't he? But John wishes to comfort and strengthen the one with true evidence of saving faith. While at the same time warning the hardened sinner that they must be born again. That they're in danger. And that they are, to use the language of this part of scripture, a child. Not of God, but of the devil. Two eternal families. Two very different destinations. And these are eternal destinations. Eternal destinations. And the question, ask yourself here this morning, are you one of God's children? Number one now, as we look at this text, definitions of sin and righteousness. Definitions of sin and righteousness. Now before we we look at this huge gulf that there is between these two families, these two families which will end up in very, very different places, between the children of Satan and the children of God, we must look at some definitions. We must use the same dictionary. I remember I was in my study the other day and one of my daughters was there and was pulling a dictionary off the, off, off the shelf. And one of the reasons I was pulling a dictionary off the shelf is we have no internet in our house, as many of you probably know at this point. To use that same dictionary, those definitions, otherwise we're going to be speaking a different language. What is sin and what is righteousness? Sometimes sin can be just presented like this, a mistake, an oopsie moment. But look at verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now what is John trying to say? Well, that is, sin is lawlessness, or to put it another way, an absence of the law. A rejection of the law. A setting aside of the law. What law are we talking about? We're talking about the law of God. The law of God. And by the way, this, is, this kind of warning was given by Jesus himself. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23 says this. And see if you recognize the similarities between the warning of Jesus and the warning here of John. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice, remember that word? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. In the Greek language, there's an extra letter, alpha, put at the beginning of this word law. When we have, say, a person is a theist, that means they believe in God. An atheist does not believe in God. Here, we have the law. We don't have the law for the person who has been spoken about here. Sin is a rejection 
of the law. That's what it is. And anybody who practices this as their lifestyle, there's a warning here. There's a warning, both from Jesus and from John's letter. Lawless living or an absence from the law of God, a style of life not interested in God's will, there's a warning here. Now, you say, well, what is the will of God? Well, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the hardened unbeliever is not going to want to follow the Ten Commandments. Or another way it's summarized, the two great commandments Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the same law. Make it even smaller again. God is love. It's the same law, it's just different ways of summarizing the same law, a love for God. In a way, it's really saying if you've set aside law, if you're lawless, that really is unloving. And this, this is what, this is the seriousness of sin. Now, we've got to be careful here. Does this verse mean, it's possible you could read this by itself and think, does this mean if I commit a sin, I'm in trouble? No, we're all sinners. We're all sinners, myself included. This is not what the verse is talking about here. Literally what the verse is saying is all the doers, as in they're kind of continuously living in sin, and this is actually a lot clearer in the original language, of sin and live without the law, and that law is lawless, that sin is lawlessness, they are the ones who this passage from verses 4 to 12 are being warned about. This is their lifestyle. This is the characteristic fruit. This is normal for them. Look, Christians do fall into sin. But the characteristic fruit is not sin. It's righteousness. (coughs) There is... Perhaps, and this is the warning to perhaps a person may, in a very human way, an external way, have good Christian living, if you could use a phrase like this, but essentially really live by their own rules. That, if that is you, this warning is for you. My rules do not matter. My opinions do not matter. Our opinions do not matter. What matters is the will and law of God. We must not follow our own way. That's what it really means here. That's what sin is. Sin is like, I reject the law of God. I don't care what the law of God says. I want what I want. I want what I want. Now, if you are a child of God, I said children of God do fall into sin. Your, your heavenly father loves you. And what would, a, what would an earthly father do with a child whom he loves? He will correct them. He will correct them. There's many references in the book of Proverbs of the use of the rod. And the, the loving correction because a loving parent disciplines his child. In a loving way. And even think about children. If children are not taught by their parents... And they live lawlessly. They will not appreciate the values of their parents' generation. They will do their own way. Lawlessness. 
What does God the Father do with us when we fall into sin? Well, it says this in Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged. We can be discouraged sometimes in these things, but we ought not to be. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. It's very easy in the chastening of the Lord as believers to become encouraged or discouraged, sorry, by this. But the scriptures say, don't be discouraged. It's even to say, children, when you are being disciplined by your, your parents, don't be discouraged. Your parents love you, care about you. They want to drive you from that sin you are pursuing and to bring you towards what is good and holy and righteous. God corrects and lovingly brings back his children from sin. Verse 7 of our text says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And I remember thinking at home, well, why does John write this? Why does he say, let no one deceive you? Because people will try to tell you otherwise. People will try to deceive. It's easy, humanly speaking, to give cheap encouragement and cheap grace. And that encouragement can disappear over time. But friends, brothers in Christ, if you are saved, if you are born again, there will be a difference. Now, the amount of fruit in your life will vary. Some people have very little fruit. Some people have a lot of fruit. It just depends. We're all different. But there will be a degree of change. There will be a degree of righteousness. And when you do fall into sin, it will grieve you. Because you are really following the law of God after the end of men. And perhaps you're here this morning. And I think it's important to point out as well. When we go through topics such as this, the person who often goes home and thinks, oh, that's it, I'm not saved, I'm in trouble, oh boy, are often the people who are not, who is being addressed here. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the person who doesn't worry, should be, and the person who is worried, shouldn't be. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling and you're saying, I see my sin It grieves me. It horrifies me. How can I get old? That is fruit of saving faith. Just that. The fact that your sin grieves you. The fact that your sin makes you sad. That's fruit. An unbeliever is happy in his sin. And quite comfortable in his sin. It's actually an encouraging sign. If you do struggle. The whole idea of struggling is that you're actually trying to wrestle against it. If you grieve over your sin, take heart, dear friend. It's encouraging. It may not seem it at the time, 
but it is really a, a sign that you are following and seeking to follow after God. So number two now, we're going to look at deliverance from sin to righteousness. Deliverance from sin to righteousness. So we've looked at definitions of sin and righteousness. Now we're going to look at deliverance from sin to righteousness. Did Christ come, and I, I, I try to say this reverently, did Christ come, the infinite God, to just rescue us from hell? Or, as it's sometimes presented in, in church culture, almost as if just in case hell is real, I want to make sure I'm trusting in Jesus. Now, if he rescued us from hell alone, that alone would be amazing. Because we, we don't deserve heaven. We do deserve hell. But what does it say in verses 5 and 6? It says this, and you know that he was manifested. Manifested in the flesh to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Jesus not only came to rescue us from hell, he came to save us from our sins. It says this in Matthew one twenty one, and she will bring forth a son, that is Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. To what? If they're saving from something, it's going to be to something else. As in, Jesus came to rescue us, not just to leave us in our sin until we die. But to change us so that we do not live in a continual, habitual state of following after sin and lawlessness. As we've seen in our definitions, he who loves sin loves lawlessness. And lawlessness is basically saying, my law, not God's law. And this is talking about somebody who loves their sin. Absence from the body, or absent from the, from the law of God. And the rejection of the will of God. But friend, if you are saved... From your sins. From. Very important preposition there. From. It is not. Okay we're imperfect. I understand that. Because even John says that. If we say we have not sinned. We deceive ourselves. First John chapter 1 verse 9. We do sin. That is true. But it is never to continue. In the same path of life. It's to be changed. To be conformed. You're basically saying, people talk a lot about their identity these days and identify different ways. You're no longer to identify by your sin. We're to identify by Christ. Following him. Christ came for a reason. Did he fail in that mission? Not at all. God forbid that he would fail in that mission. He transforms here in this world and even more so in the world to come. The thing is, what we've tasted and seen here in this world, as wonderful as it is, is but a crumb 
is but a crumb of the fullness to come. Imagine if you're at the end of a plate and you go, hmm, those crumbs are nice and it's just a few bits of the cake. Which is nicer, the crumbs or the full cake? The full cake, isn't it? The full cake is much more satisfying than just the crumbs. In this world, we just get the crumbs. And those are wonderful crumbs. But we have so much more to look forward to, dear friends. But here in this world, even though compared to eternity, we only see glimpses. We are still a people transformed, changed. Whoever abides in him does not sin, John wrote. Whoever sins has never seen, neither seen him nor known him. There's a stark, very strong way John is writing. Neither seen him nor known him. Now, this is not speaking about seeing Jesus physically. Um, Jesus has left heaven in his bodily form. Okay, in, in his divine nature, he fills all things But as true God and true man, he is in heaven and he will be there until he returns at the end of time. He will return for no one until the end of time. There are many people who have claimed today. I remember I used to listen to many Christian podcasts when I first got saved. And the amount of people who have claimed that they've seen Jesus in physical form. It is contrary to the scriptures, dear friends. They may be very... Genuine, They may believe that they've seen him, but they haven't seen him with their physical form. He is in heaven and will return and come in like manner. That's what it says in Acts 1. However, by faith, we do see Christ. What do we see? He is lovely. Isn't he? He is altogether lovely in every sense. If we see him, we don't need to be convinced how lovely he is. We just see how lovely he is. It's almost as if, imagine if you've been blind all of your life. And then all of a sudden you get your eyesight back. And then for the first time in your life you see the sunset. The sun is rising over the horizon. No one needs to convince you of how beautiful The sunset is. It just is. The wonderful thing is Christ is far more radiant than the sun. He is far more glorious. And once we see him, once we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we will love him because he is altogether lovely. And we have to be made spiritually alive. Until we're made spiritually alive, we will not appreciate Christ For to not see Christ in this sense is to really be blind to him. When when our eyes are open, what we start to see is the ugliness of sin. That thing that once attracted us so much. And then we see the beauty of Christ. We want to run away from that ugliness. and And run toward him who is glorious, who is beautiful, and who is joyful to be around. Christ is joyful to be around. Christ is wonderful to sit at his feet. And when you see him, you also know him. And I don't just mean know him intellectually. This is a deep, intimate knowing. Number three now. So we've looked at deliverance. Now we're going to look at domain. 
domain. Under Christ or Satan. Under Christ or Satan. If you notice again verses 5 and 6. There's a term used a couple of times here in verses 5 and 6. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him. In him. Whoever abides in him. Does not sin. In him. We share this union with Christ. In January at the baptism. We were. George McDowell's baptism. We were looking at union with Christ. And that picture that we saw in Colossians. How baptism. Signifies and seals. Being brought into union with Christ. And this this union. Is something all of us have by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're in union with Christ, what have we left behind? Whose domain and dominion have we forsaken? And to that other family, it's going to look like treason. It's going to look treacherous. The devils. Christ feeds us. He feeds us with good things. In him. And when we're in him, we do not continue in that life of sin because we find other things far more appealing and attractive and wonderful. You see, dear friends, the, the Christian life is like, it's not just, um, you know, the, the caricature of the Puritans maybe going around with a stick and saying, no, can't do that, no, can't do that. No, it is you're finding God so lovely, joyful, Fragrance from on high. Just a wonderful sweet smelling aroma. That your sin is no longer attractive anymore. It becomes something that grieves you more and more. As you grow in Christ. As you grow under this domain of Christ. And away from the influence of Satan. Under his influence. We often say don't we. It's very important. And it is very important. Young people. Your friends. Your friends will often have a huge impact on how you develop. Maybe you're 16, 17. Those friends that you have will often influence you in a good way or a bad way. Well, dear friends, we need the influence of Christ above that of the influence of the devil. Verse 8 says this. He who sins is of the devil, for for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might, what? Destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And if our life and our mission and our hope is not about putting sin to death in our lives, putting sin to death in our families, putting sin to death wherever it may appear in society or wherever we have influence, then it is something contrary to what Christ came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. It's very forcefully put in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Or put in another way. If you've been born of God, you can't. It's impossible to continue to live like the world. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. But he's got you in his grip. The Savior has got you in his grip if you've trusted in him. He's holding you. And if he holds you, 
Does it make sense that we would continue off and to live like the world, to act like the world? Not at all. See, the danger is we can have a very casual attitude to sin. And just, I was talking to somebody there in the town, and there's almost an attitude of, ah, sure, don't we all sin? It's like, you know, when you're hammering a nail and you miss the nail and you, you hit your thumb. Oops. But that's not sin. Sin is rebellion. It is willful rebellion. Sometimes, I find this part interesting as well. You know when we read about the children of the devil? Whenever we think of the children of the devil, what's the first thing that comes into our minds often? Sometimes we may have read a a strange story from years ago in the media. You know, devil worshippers in some part of the world or something like that. Years ago there was a a group called the Church of Satan. Don't know if they exist anymore. I think they were in California. Even in Cork, where I grew up, I actually met and I was friends with professing Satanists. That's kind of shocking, I know. And even I got influenced by it as well. I came under that influence. When we think of the children of the devil, we just think of those people. And no one else. People like that. People who do strange, evil things and maybe end up in the media. Maybe they're a little bit odd and strange. Maybe they're involved in the occult, something dark and sinister. Now, it certainly includes those people. It does include those people. But not only those. What about the good, clean, living person? Perhaps even attends a church, but the church maybe doesn't even believe in the Trinity. Or has another Jesus preached than the one in the Bible? Are they too part of this family of Satan? Well, outside of Christ, dear friends, all are part of that family. All. It's pretty shocking to to realize that. Your nice neighbor who doesn't trust in Jesus is a child of the devil. It's very hard even to say it, isn't it? Even to think it. But this is what the scriptures tell us. It's all outside of Christ. And this is why it's so urgent that we get the gospel out there. Our finally, number, our fourth point, our final point, differences between children. So we've looked at definitions. We've looked at deliverance. We've looked at domain, or we could say influence. Now we're going to look at the differences between children. The, these two families. Often you're known by your family. And what I mean by that is this. We, we all kind of, even if we're different from our father or our mother, we all have these little things that our father or mother pass on to us. Um, sometimes we'll talk a certain way, make certain jokes, and they'll kind of go, ah, you're so-and-so's son, aren't you? Just by your personality. They'll recognize something. It may be a certain laugh. It may be a a, a sense of humor. But by our actions, we can often tell what family we are from. Even the fact that I'm from Cork, I, I, I do certain things that are very typical of Cork people. Spiritually, you can also see what family you're from. The difference is huge. And it is massive and it is a huge gulf. Differences manifest and show themselves. Of who is your master? Verse 10. In this the children of God 
and the children of the devil are manifest or shown or revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now it's very interesting. John doesn't just stop there. Just saying, hey, look, um, God's people follow the law of God. The devil's people don't. He even brings in an extra thing. Now it's not an extra thing. It's really part of the law of God. But he brings in love of brothers. Love of our brother. And he gives a very, you could say a very sad and tragic example between Cain and Abel. Cain who is of the evil one. And Abel whose works were righteous. And I think passages such as this should really challenge us all that we would seek to love one another. For this is the message, verse 11, which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The the, the children of God, we're characterized by our love toward one another. Imagine, if you will, say this morning, somebody came here. They knew nothing about Christianity. They knew nothing about Jesus. They just came in out of pure curiosity. Hmm, I'd like to go to a church one day. They knew nothing about what we believed. They found what was preached strange and unusual and something they couldn't get their minds around. But would they notice something that they don't have? A love between brother and sister Sister, sister, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, spiritual uncles, spiritual aunts, spiritual nieces, spiritual nephews. Would they see, they'd be struck by, wow, I don't agree with anything they believe, but look at the love here, it's hard to deny. Would they see that? Would they be struck by that if they came in amongst us here this morning? Because that love really speaks. It speaks of the difference, the gap between one family and another family. Like the devil's family are falling out all the time. Just turn on the media for five minutes. They don't get on with each other. The church really, it's not that we're trying to be strange or weird or unusual for being unusual. But the church is to be different. The church is different. Christ, what Christ offers is something the world cannot offer. And how do we show that we're in this family? Love. Love one another in a biblical and warm way. It says in Ephesians 4 verses 31 to 32, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there's a love we see in other families. They may not be Christian families. But we ought to be, shouldn't we? Because we have seen the one who is love. We love the one who is love. So we should really be. We should stand out in our love. And what happens when we don't? What happens when there's a a hatred you see what Cain and Abel are. It's a, it's a, I, I think we can read it so many times we forget the horror of Cain and Abel. You know, it becomes maybe a, a, a kind of a, a story that gets passed along. 
Imagine you have two brothers that grew up in the same house. They grew up with each other. And one worships God as is revealed. And the other one is angry, furious that God did not accept his offering. And what happened? Cain, out of the hatred in his heart, killed him. This is why we have to put these things to death. The end of hatred of a brother is really murder. That's where, if it goes to its nth degree. What does it say about Abel? Abel has a very positive and wonderful testimony in scripture. It says in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. It showed the difference between Abel was so different to Cain. God testifying of his gifts and and through it, he being dead still speaks. Isn't that amazing? Abel is dead. He's in heaven today, but his testimony still speaks in the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Our Men and women and children and those who've suffered for the covenanter cause in the 17th century. Their testimony of dying still speaks. Years later, hundreds of years later, we still read of the stories of, of people who stand up for the cause of Christ and they die. And there's testimony. It still speaks. Even after they're gone. Dear friends, in this generation, with all the challenges that we face, will you, by grace, by the strength that God gives you, it's the only way you'll be able to do it, stand out. Stand out for Christ when needed. When needed. Will your testimony still speak To your children when you're gone. Will your testimony. I'm not saying that we're trying to be famous. Or anything else like that. But that we would be known. As those who would look to God. People of principle. Conviction. And a love. For one another. That's what sets us apart. From the children of the devil. I pray that every single one here knows that they're a child of God. But maybe there are, maybe there are someone here that's come to realize I am a child of the devil. But there's still hope. There is still hope. You're still breathing. Come to Christ. Come to him this day. Uh, flee from broken cisterns. Flee from things that don't satisfy. Come and drink of the fountain of living waters. Come and be satisfied. Come and taste that the Lord is good and trust in him is blessed. Come and experience joys. Say goodbye. Wave goodbye to the disappointment and and the gravel and the sand and the... This world doesn't satisfy. It was never meant to satisfy. But if you are a true believer, don't stay where you are. Don't stay where you are. Come for more of Christ. 
Come for more of him. Find more satisfaction and joy and peace in him. That he may assure your heart this day. Amen.